turning our attention to one of the Psalms. Uh, if you are visiting, we're in a series this summer on the Psalms, and we're looking here and there, no particular order. And this, this lends itself to a good series for the summer, I hope, because a lot of folks are in and out. And um, so we're, we're coming to a close, not this week, but next. We're looking at uh, Psalm 87 this week. Psalm 87. If you don't have your Bible, the text is printed in the order of worship there. You can follow there. You know, I mentioned a little while ago about, uh, you know, a concordance is a study tool. Actually, there's concordances for all kinds of books, not just the Bible. But uh, where you can look up where words appear, every word, where it appears in a, in a work like the Bible. And, uh, and I mentioned the word boasting is, is big in, in uh, Paul's writings. Another word that uh, is big to the Apostle Paul is the word mystery. He talks about mystery a lot and, and actually uses it with some different applications. One of the major ones that he uses, he says, in effect he says, you know, there was, there was this concealed reality before our time. And he doesn't mean just maybe for 20, 25 years. He's talking for over a millennium. This ancient, ancient mystery that's now being revealed. And it comes up a lot because he's writing to Gentile churches. He was really the apostle to the Gentiles. Um, and here's what he's getting at. Uh, Augustine, who came centuries after Paul, he said this, that the New Testament is in the Old concealed. The Old Testament is in the, is in the New revealed. I think I got that right. <laughs> the New Testament is that New Testament truths, New Testament realities are in the old concealed. The Old Testament realities, what they were getting us ready for, what they're preparing us for, are in the new revealed. That that Paul was all about that. That's what kind of that was the butter on his toast. In this in this psalm that we're about to look at, here's what he's talking about: that this mystery of God having plans to expand the children of Abraham and for, the, for His blessings to come on Israel in a way they had never been on any other nation, but that that was going to expand into something so large that no one could have imagined it. No one could have scripted it. Uh, that is in this psalm. It's not revealed as clearly as it is in the New Testament. We are coming to it with the New Testament, and we're going to look at it through those lenses. But that's what this psalm is about. And I told Dana um, yesterday, I said, you know, I feel like tomorrow I have to preach on the whole Bible. Okay, this may be the first three-hour sermon I've ever preached, and possibly my last one employed on staff at Downtown Presbyterian, if I do that. But just it, it, this just gets into these huge swaths of what the Bible is about. I'm going to be quoting from all over the place. I'm going to try not to overdo it, but I've got to do it some. But let me say this before I read the text. Here is how pertinent this is. If you were going to invite someone to a community group, you know, these are these small groups that really are subsets of our church. Most have been on break for the summer, but they're about to kick back in, and you'll hear more about that. But... If you're going to invite someone, like let's say you're in one of these community groups that's almost like a little parish, you know, it's very much 
in that neighborhood. And you, th- and you think about a neighbor and think, I'd like to invite them. Who would you be willing to invite? What kind of person would you be willing to invite? Or if you think about, all right, here the, the worship service at Downtown Prez. You know, I mentioned it. It's just really, it's really encouraging to look at and see these different faces that we've never seen before. Now, some people might find us by you know, a web search. I mean, that happens sometimes, but usually it's through the invitation of someone else. Who would you be willing to invite to come to do this? And it may be that you get shot down five times in a row, but who would you be willing to invite that sixth time? What kind of person? If, if you participate in something like uh, one of these midweek studies and you, and you envision, who is it that might come? Who, who is in your mental picture? Or if you think about, you know, I, I want to be a neighbor to my neighbors. And at one level, everybody in the world is your neighbor. But in your neighborhood, those people are really, really your neighbors. They're your neighbor neighbors. When I think about what it would look like to really move towards someone, not to make them a project, not to do a bait and switch, not as some kind of judo move where they look up and they're like teaching Sunday school and go, whoa, what happened? I mean, but just, just to know them and love them and relate to them, Toward whom would I move? Like, how nice do they have to be? How moral do they, do they already have to be? Psalm 87 speaks directly to our mental pictures of, of what is possible, of what might be. Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples, This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we need to be fed from your hand. We need you to give us food, maybe in a way that we don't really even understand. We don't understand how we need as sheep to be fed. It may be that we are here and we are not yet even sheep. And we need you to transform us into something that we have not been before. Be at work in our midst and use now your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may or may not have seen this in the news a few, maybe two months ago, not sure exactly when, not over two months ago. Video was leaked to the United States, probably got all over the world. It was a video of a Christian, a professing Christian man in Afghanistan, uh, Abdul Latif. 
and the video was of four men who claimed to be in the Taliban, and they, they had him on his knees on the ground, and their faces are covered, and two of the four have automatic weapons, and they all have suicide bomb vests on, and uh, they say that he is guilty of being an infidel. Uh, one reads a charge from the Koran, and uh, on the video, they beheaded him. And the Taliban um, claimed responsibility. Now, lots of things like that have happened. That's just a recent one. Um, another example. I, someone emailed me uh, something that came across in the news online this week, and it was a story about, <clears throat> you know, the Chinook helicopter that was shot down a little over a week ago. It had a lot of special forces on board. It was a story about the son of the helicopter pilot and a young boy, not over 10 years old, and I think it was his stepmother, said that just a few days before the accident, she saw her son looking out the window and she noticed he had tears in his eyes. And she said, what's the matter? And he said, when is daddy coming home? And she said, well, you know, he's serving our country. He's, he's way across the ocean. He's serving our country. And he said, well, when he gets home, we're going camping. Just me and him. We're going camping. Not going to happen. Taliban claims responsibility. Now, I want to begin, before we go any further, with a question. This is a question for us. Does God want the Taliban to know and love him? We could ask it this way. Does God love the Taliban? Does God have great compassion in his heart for the Taliban? Because here's the thing. The way we answer that question is going to say a lot about what we really think deep down about who gets in and who doesn't. And, and as we've said many, many times on Sunday mornings, most everybody has sort of an official theology and then a real theology. You know, an example we've used before is officially, kind of like in my fill-in-the-blank Sunday school test way or kind of, you know, theology test way, is God sovereign and completely in control of everything? Yes, true. Then why do I have an ulcer? Because my real theology is that he is not in control. I am mostly in control. And when I lose control, my ulcer grows. That's my real theology. The public reality and the private reality. Publicly, we would say, yes. God has love for all people. He, the Psalms say he has compassion on all that he's made. But deep down, deep down in our heart of hearts, it is our tendency to think... There is something about what I'm like and what I've done and what I am doing and what I'm contributing that moves him toward me. And there's something about what other people are doing that moves God away from them. And if we were really honest, we would say, and they deserve it. Psalm 87 should be like a grenade on that. Um... Standing up here to talk to you about what, what does Zion mean to God? I feel like I've been asked to stand up and in 15 minutes sum up, what does liberty mean to Americans? <laughs> Just give a brief talk on the role of liberty in the United States. Start. 
I mean, like, it's so massive, it's so gigantic in its scope, that's so wrapped up in what it even means to be Americans, why there is an America, you don't know where to begin. I feel that way in talking about what, what is Zion and what is Jerusalem in the Bible. And that's why I'm going to preach a sermon on the whole Bible over the next 15 or 20 minutes. I want to look at two things this morning. First off, God loves His city. God loves his city. It actually never names Jerusalem, but it just says the city in Psalm 87. He loves his city. The second thing, just as important, God expands his city. He loves his city and expands his city. How does the psalm begin? It says, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. And it's talking about Zion. And when the Bible uses the name Zion... It can mean different things. Sometimes it means just the mount on which the temple was situated, the temple mount. Sometimes it means the city of Jerusalem. Sometimes it means the whole area. There are places in the Bible where it talks about the daughter of Zion. And that seems to be a reference to here's Zion, the temple mount, and here's the city of Jerusalem sort of uh, spreading down beneath it. And it's the daughter of Zion. It's sort of intentionally vague. This psalm seems to refer to the whole thing. It says this, All right, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. Now listen to this language. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. And what's it saying? It's saying that you know, God, He loves His people and He gives them this promised land and He loves that promised land. He speaks about this land is like no other land and not the way I care for it and send rain and harvest and all that. But this one spot is absolutely my favorite. And that comes up in other places in Scripture. Listen, I'm going to read one other one. This is from Psalm 48. Listen to this. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, And that almost sounds like it comes from Fellowship of the Ring or something. You know, the king, the city, the beauty, the joy of all the earth. It's just, there's no other city that is described this way in the Bible. Uh, Just a couple of psalms after this, Psalm 50, it just talks about how it's beautiful. And God shines out of it. He can live wherever He wants. The universe can't contain him, but in this unique way, he loves and dwells in, and he shines out of this beautiful place, Zion, Jerusalem. Now, here's what we're seeing. Number one, he loves this city, but there's two aspects to this love. Number one, it's genuine. It's heartfelt. When he says these things, he's not fibbing. He really feels this, but it's baffling. It's very genuine and heartfelt, but it is truly baffling. And the reason is, when you read in the Old Testament about when God's people really start to go off the rails, and they're not just, if I can even put it this way, they're not mildly disobeying. They are now disobeying with a high hand, with a raised fist. Typically, the epicenter of it is where? It's here in Jerusalem. Let me give you one example. One of the kings of Judah, in other words, whose throne was in Jerusalem. That was where he was, you know, that's where his rule was. King Manasseh. 
here's a few things Manasseh did. Um, he moved the people of God to the worship of Molech. Molech was an ancient deity that the surrounding nations had worshipped, and Israel began to participate in it. Molech, we think, was worshipped uh, with sort of a hollow, metallic bull deity. And uh, one of the forms of Molech worship was the bull would either have a giant open mouth or it would have kind of like a, a human body with outstretched hands. You would build a fire up underneath it till the, the iron was red hot. And then you would take your child and you would feed Molech. And, and God seems to just hate this practice in particular. He says in more than one place in the Old Testament... That never entered my mind for my people to do something like that. Manasseh moves the people to the worship of Molech. He not only sets up sort of worship stations of different idols in Jerusalem, he puts them in the temple. Okay? It's bad enough to put them anywhere for them to exist. He puts them in the temple of God. Here's what it ends up saying about him in Second Chronicles. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, I sent you in to displace these incredibly wicked nations, and you have surpassed them in your wickedness and evil. And the epicenter of where you do this is the city where my name dwells. Now, there's a couple of errors that this should address. And really, it's not two errors. Errors, It's one error, two sides of the same coin. And these are things that lurk deeply in our heart. One is this. God loves people because their lives are beautiful. And the other side of that error, coin, is God does not love people whose lives are ugly. Both are wrong. L listen to one of the things it says. This is just shortly after the description of Manasseh took the people into such wickedness, he, they passed the wickedness of the nations that they displaced. Listen to this. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on his dwelling place, Zion. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And some of the harshest actions in the Old Testament that God does on his people are aimed at the city of Jerusalem. Now, where does that leave us? What does God do? You know, you get this language in the Psalms. I love it. It's beautiful. Nothing like it. I dwell there. I shine out of it. And this just seems to be the focus of His own people's wickedness. And He sends loving messages and messengers, and they're mocked and they're killed in that city. Jesus talked about that. So what does God do? Um... You know, we've, we've mentioned the name G.K. Chesterton before. G.K. Chesterton was sort of C.S. Lewis 
before C.S. Lewis was C.S. Lewis. And he wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And my favorite quote out of this book, because uh, it makes me think about just what we, what we want for Greenville, what we want for our city. Chesterton, he's, he's a Brit, he's writing about this, this section of London called Pimlico. And Pimlico's really down and out. And, and people are fleeing from it. You know, they're moving to nicer places. And here's what Chesterton says. He says, let's suppose we're confronted with, confronted with a desperate thing, say Pimlico. He says, okay, it looks like there's two options. He says, it's not enough for a man to disapprove of Pimlico. In that case, he will merely cut his throat or move. In other words, if you find yourself living in Pimlico and you disapprove of it, you can either commit suicide or you can move. And he says this, nor certainly is it enough for a man to approve of Pimlico, for then it will remain Pimlico, which would be awful. You don't just want to stay there and go, well, it is the way it is. If everybody does that, it stays crummy and gets crummier. He says, no, the only way out of it seems to be for somebody to love Pimlico. To love it with a transcendental tie and without any earthly reason. If there arose a man who loved Pimlico, then Pimlico would rise into ivory towers and golden pinnacles. Pimlico would attire herself as a woman does when she is loved. For decoration is not given to hide horrible things, but to decorate things that are already adorable. And he goes on to say this, Men did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because they had loved her. Now, you know, i, I got to say this, that reminds me of what I want for Greenville. Like, let's not use Greenville, the city, if you use Greenville, you will almost always point your car that way. And you will almost never point your car that way. And the people listening to this sermon on the podcast will have no idea what just happened. <laughs> Nor will we ever tell them. But more importantly, uh, th- think about Jerusalem was never... <laughs> She was never great because she herself was great. God didn't love her because He found her to be great. She was great because He loved her from the beginning and through the ups and downs. He loved her. And what was the ultimate demonstration of that? And I owe that we had the time because that's all in my notes. But you get these prophecies where he talks about, you know, I'm going to come. I will come to Jerusalem. It won't be a messenger. I will come. And finally a day will come when this mountain, the holy mountain, I will establish it in such a way that it covers the entire earth. Well, what is that getting us ready for? Centuries later, and we don't mean like one or two hundred years. We're talking about like as far from Psalm 87 as the Vikings are from us probably, that God becomes an Israelite. And think about how both on the beginning and the end of His ministry, meaningful things happen between Him and Jerusalem. Think about early in His ministry. He's sitting in Jerusalem, and one night He gets a visitor from a religious leader who lives in Jerusalem named Nicodemus. And they're talking... And uh, this man starts off with kind of the, you know, the nice, niceties, the polite comments and says, we know that 
uh, you're an impressive teacher, and, and we see these signs that you're doing, and Jesus cuts through the fog like a laser and says, if you are not born... And you can translate this two different ways. Either if you are not born from above or if you are not born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. It is completely baffling to this religious leader. Jesus even says, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things. Why is that significant? Because Jesus is saying to somebody, as they're sitting in Jerusalem, you know, you can be born anywhere. But that is not the issue. The issue is, have you been born from above? Have you experienced a second birth that is as real, that is as factual as the first physical birth, but has nothing to do with geography? And Nicodemus has no idea what he's talking about. Psalm 87 speaks of that birth. It says that God is going to look at all these different nationalities who are not ethnically descended from Abraham, they're not ethnically Jewish, and say, that one and that one and that one and that one were born in Jerusalem, although they clearly were not physically born there. Okay, that's the beginning of his ministry. What about at the end? You know, Palm Sunday, we talk about the triumphal entry. Where, where is he entering? He's entering Jerusalem. When he rides in, does he get off his colt and kind of, you know, do the high fives and say, all right, let's, let's, let's usher this baby in. Uh, here's what Luke records. And when he drew near and saw the city, and that is really important that he says it that way. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And he ends by saying, you did not know the time of your visitation. That the God who always loved you, always looked at you as the apple of His eye, who dwelt in your midst, He came to you, still God, but also as one of you, He came to you in particular and you rejected Him. And something so horrible is going to happen to this city that you'll never believe it. It's so bad that when Jesus is going to the cross, that the women who followed Him, who listened to His teaching, who are weeping, He sees them and says, Do not cry for me. Cry for yourselves because of what is going to happen to this city. It is that much on his heart as he's going to die. Well, where does that leave us? Do, do, so does that leave us where, you know what? Even God came and tried his best with Zion, with Jerusalem, and it was a wash. Do, does Jerusalem just then disappear from the New Testament? And here's the awesome thing. No, it does not. God says in Psalm 87, in another text, I will establish Jerusalem. I will establish Zion. What does that look like? Jesus is killed by people in Jerusalem. He is betrayed by people in Jerusalem. He is mocked and put through a kangaroo trial. 
by the religious leaders of Jerusalem. He dies outside the city because it's viewed as too holy to have a crucifixion. So he's banished from it to be executed. And he dies. And he rises from the dead. And before he ascends into heaven, he gathers his followers and says, Wait here in Jerusalem until you're given power from on high. And then you're going to be my witnesses. And you will be my witnesses starting with where? A city that dadgum deserves it? You will start with Jerusalem. And then you'll work your way out. And several weeks after that, there are all these people in Jerusalem. Listen to this description in the book of Acts. It says, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And do you hear what he just said? They're Jews. They're devout Jews. Their nationalities are from all over the world. They see and hear something happen to the apostles. The apostles begin to talk in languages that they did not themselves know, that they were not fluent in. They begin to speak to the different nationalities in their own languages. And Luke says that the response was, How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites. What are Elamites? Residents of Mesopotamia. Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, which is named in Psalm 87, and the parts of Libya belonging to... Just literally spanning the globe. We're all here and we're hearing you talk about God and Jesus of Nazareth in our language as if you're from there. How is this possible? How is it possible? Because God is doing something on a grander scale than anyone could have imagined. He is expanding Jerusalem, not geographically, but in the hearts of men and women. That Jerusalem, the site of the temple, is now going to expand where people all over the earth will be His temple. People all over the earth will shine forth with His beauty as they have become His temple, His house. They will be the earthly representation of the true Jerusalem. The city in Judea? No. Heaven itself, which of all the cities that God could have named it, could have named it Eden after the garden, could have named it whatever He wants, He names it Jerusalem. Paul says in the book of Galatians, the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. There's so much more stuff I want to get into. Um, Wish I could talk about Joppa. Maybe I'll email you about Joppa. But in Psalm 87, think about this. The people that God uses as examples of how I'm going to expand Zion, expand Jerusalem, were some of the biggest enemies in the world of God's people. But who are they? Look in verse 4. Among those who know me, and that's the ultimate. That is the ultimate. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me. Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab, that means Egypt, the enslavers of Israel, and Babylon. Babylon, known for its fierce cruelty to its enemies, especially God's people. 
Babylonians would come into a town, they would kill a certain allot, allotment of the men, they would decapitate them, they would take their heads and uh, stack them like a pyramid at the gate of the city. Now, can you imagine that? Hopefully not. Can you imagine the Babylonians coming that and doing, to, doing that to you as a Jewish person and hearing them say, Oh, you're the children of Abraham. Oh, you're the blessed children of Abraham. God's going to make you a blessing among all the nations. Well, here's a pile of uh, your blessed neighbors. And we're about to go one city over and do the same thing to those blessed Israelites. But what would that do to your heart? And God says, when I get out my book, when I get out my register, who was born in Zion? Who knows me? Who belongs to God's people? Who do I love and dote on? There's Egyptians, there's Babylonians, Philistines, seafaring, wild, violent people, the Philistines that were just the bane of Israel's existence. And I'll be able to say, this one and that one and that one and that one, they know me. And they were born in Jerusalem. Let's make some application here. What are we doing in Greenville? What are we doing in Greenville? On the one hand, primarily we're here to worship God, to worship Him and know Him, to seek after Him and to walk in His ways, and to do whatever He entrusts to us. But one of the great things that He entrusts to us is to love our neighbor. And the reality is this. If I stand up here as a minister of the gospel and say, you need to take an interest in your next-door neighbor. How can you come here and worship God and say that you love people and you never had your next-door neighbor over? If you haven't had your next-door neighbor over for lunch and told them about Jesus, how can you look at yourself in the mirror? Let's close in prayer. That, That is the most unhelpful and unmotivating I I mean, it just, that is not going to make anybody do it unless you're extremely prone to crumple under guilt trips. But what if we looked at it this way? You know, Jesus stood up at a great feast and he said, if anybody thirsts, he doesn't say, come to my teaching. He says, if anybody thirsts, let him come to me. This is an, again, oh, that we had time to unpack this. What he's saying is, all all these descriptions in the Bible of the temple and of Jerusalem having these springs of water that go out from it that are going to take care of the nations, and that resurfaces in the last chapter of the Bible that in heaven it looks like a temple from which there is a river going forth and all the nations go to it and their thirst is quenched and they're healed and they can rest. Jesus is standing up and saying, I am the water. And then he says this, if, if you come to me, springs of water, if you believe, springs of water will flow out of you. In a sense, it kind of leaves us going, well, which is it? Like, are you the water? Is the water coming out of you or is the water coming out of me? And the answer is Yes. It starts with Him, but it's flowing through you. Now, this could sound like magic, but I think this is thoroughly biblical. This water, if you drink it, 
it changes your birthplace. And instead of saying, go out and have your next door neighbor over and tell them about Jesus, how can you face yourself if you haven't done that? Think about your own life. What if, what if I were the means by which my coworker one day drank that water? And it might be that that has to be preceded by five years of thinking, them thinking that I am holier than thou and that I'm tukey and I'm religious and they, do, they decidedly do not want to hang out with me, but then something somehow changes by the hand of God. And what if I am the source, if we can put it this way, of this Jerusalem water, this temple water, and really what it is is Jesus' water, it didn't originate with me. I had to drink it. But this person, and not like the nice one, the one that's already moral, the one that's already sweet, the one that I think was reading a Christian book at work the other day, but like the person who thinks that all this is just bunk, that he or she drinks it, and in God's book, their birthplace reads different. That God is able to say, he or she was born in Zion. That is our calling. That is our calling. And you'll be most prone to do that when that water is delicious to you. The Israelite who believed that he was better than the Egyptian, better than the Babylonian, better than the Philistine, was not going to move toward people who were different than him. The New Testament Christian who believes that he is better than the Taliban, better than the gang member, better than the whatever it is that's the biggie sin to you, does not feel deeply in his or her heart that this water is wonderful and it is for anybody. Because if it, if it quenched my thirst, it will quench anybody's thirst. But if we know ourselves to be sinners real sinners in our real theology, we will be able to say, God, from your Jesus, from your Son, from my Savior, come all my springs, all my thirst quenching, all my delight. And it may be that through the enjoying of it, we can go to others. Springs of water will go out from us. And yes, it's supernatural. Change a person who hates organized religion, hates the Bible, hates Bible thumpers, change them into a resident of Zion. That has always been God's plan. Let's pray together. But Father God, we could say... We could say with those who lived in Jerusalem, who when they were confronted by the Apostle Peter with what they had done, we could say, it is our fault. What do we do? We know the answer. The answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If you are thirsty, come to this living water and have your thirst quenched. Lord, if we are sitting here this morning and we dwell in Jerusalem, in Zion, we thank you. If we're sitting here and we don't know that we dwell in Zion, change us.
change us and use us to bear this water to next-door neighbors and co-workers, siblings, parents, friends, that they might be recorded in your register. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.